There are two ways you can think about reality. Uh, the two ways you can think about the, the great story that we find ourselves in. Uh, and two ways in particular to think about our place in that great story. So the first is to make it really all about me. To say that all of reality is about me. I define everything that matters. Uh, my truth, my identity, my purpose, my rules for life. To say that I am valuable essentially because I say that I am. And in that story, anything that is um, difficult, anything that doesn't fit, that becomes a threat to me at the center of my story. And that story, that is the one that we have told ourselves as a culture in recent years. Uh, we can argue, if you like, after the service, whether that is 150 years or 60 years we've been doing it, but that is where we are now. And in truth, that is a lonely and a dangerous place to live. But it feels like it is freedom. I think that's why it is so attractive, because that freedom has become the most important thing to us. But there is a, a second way to think about reality, and that is a story where I am not the author, not the author of my own uh, destiny. I am not the main character. I am actually just a character in a story written by someone else. In fact, where I was brought to life by someone else, where I have a beginning, where I have an external cause, where I am subordinate and dependent. And in that case, all of the, the difficult bits that don't fit, as in other people, other characters living their own story or inconvenient truths or my own failures, those are not really threats to my identity. Those are signals that I have been looking in the wrong place. My identity, my purpose, my rules for life, really they come from outside of me. And that is the story that um, begins the Bible, the very first words in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created everything. And that is what begins John's Gospel in the New Testament. In the beginning was the Word. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And then our, our second reading this morning, page 1225, 1 John 1 verse 1, that which was from the beginning. Uh, there is God, the external cause, the beginner who has himself no beginning. And that is the story that humanity lived by for thousands of years, and actually that billions in our world still live by. And it is a joyful and a safe place to live. For all that, about half of London has rejected it. And I wonder, as Peter read 1 John 1, uh, I wonder if you notice that it sounds a lot like John chapter 1, which means that, is this your favorite carol? It is beginning to sound a lot like Christmas. Uh, the, the lights are up on Regent Street, and here is the, the heart-stirring story of life and light appearing in the darkness. And this new series, for four weeks, we're going to see what Christmas really means before we get to the carol services and the mince pies. 
Um, I have already had one Christmas dinner, I've had six mince pies and a Christmas pudding so far, all on three separate occasions. I'm ready, so um, come with me to be ready in the world of ideas as well. And what John does is he looks back at the events that he lived for, at what it meant to see and to meet Jesus. And this is his sort of summary to introduce his letter. I've got three headings for us this morning. There's an event witnessed that brings life. So let's start off with the event. That is verse 2, the life appeared. That is the event. The event is called the incarnation in Christian theology. And um, that is a little bit like when, um, when you go to the GP and a doctor uses Latin words to try and make themselves sound clever. It's just the same thing here. So incarnation There is nothing actually clever about that word, incarnation. If you ever ate chili con carne, then you know everything you need to know about it. Chili with meat. That's what it means. Carne means meat. The event we're talking about is God in meat. That's what it means. The incarnation, incarne. The word became flesh. But I think what has happened to Christmas is a bit like what has happened to mince pies. Uh, So I I got this from someone else, but do you know, um, every year we have guests here at the carol service who are confused when we offer them a mince pie. So every year we have people, they've never been to a carol service before, and they're, they're here and they've never heard of a mince pie, and we offer them one, and understandably they don't want one. They say, you know, I've been out shopping on Oxford Street, I'm feeling nice, Uh, you know, it's the evening, why would I want some kind of tiny Cornish pasty full of meat? Um, So we have to explain that instead, no, no, it's it's an inoffensive, sugary, fruit-filled sort of treat, and then they love it. Um, Mince pies used to be full of meat, and pepper, and I don't know, blood probably, and then a few bits of fruit. But now it is only the fruit and the sugar that is left. The event of God taking on flesh, that used to be about meat, about blood and death and pain and identification with us. And now it is only a a sugary treat. So John, he writes here about this event. He says it three times, but look at verse 2 again. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. The event, it is about someone who was with the Father and is the eternal life and was, verse 1, from the beginning and has now appeared. So that that complex mess of philosophical ideas about eternality and existence and Trinitarian relationships, there was an event when they all showed up in meat, in flesh, and turned out to be a person that they could see and hear and touch. And that is what Christianity really is. And if true, this is what reality really is. Uh, One way to think about it is as somebody coming from the outside, breaking in. Uh, It's not 100% right, because in many ways, Jesus, he is more inside than any of us. But we live, we live trapped on this planet, for the most part, and trapped entirely 
inside of the things that we can observe, hear and see and touch. And God, who is not at all trapped by that or limited by that, he decided to come here to take on flesh, come inside our little bubble and be observed by us. Now, there's a, a thought experiment. I, um, I've heard it laid out a couple of times by someone else. I want to offer it to you. Um, to do it right, you really need to be in a sort of small medieval church with uh, very thick walls and gloomy darkness uh, for you to hear it properly. But um, we're going to see if the, the noises of London will leave us alone just long enough to imagine it. So imagine that um, none of us uh, walked or cycled or drove to get here this morning. In fact, imagine that none of us have ever been here before in our lives. In fact, we have just this moment. We've just woken up in this building, uh, in our seats. And actually, um, this building, there are no windows and no doors, and no sound gets in from the outside at all. And we, we wake up, and we try to remember how we got here, totally bewildered. Who are all of these people? We've never seen them before in our lives. And who and where am I? And then after a short while, a message appears on all the screens. It's a challenge. Please work out where you are and what to do. Where you are and what to do. And the, there would be a lot that we could do. So the, um, the engineers and the architects, they would be, you know, tapping on the floor and, and knocking on the pillars. Uh, I'm told the physicists would be able to do something clever with string and weights and would be able to work out whether we were on the earth or on a spaceship or in a submarine, something like that. And the, the doctors and the biologists, they would try and work out how long we were unconscious for and then talk to the travel agents, try and work out how far we could have been moved in that time. And everybody else would be ignoring them and doing the sensible thing and trying to find a way out, trying to break out. Um, Because we could work out a certain amount, but trapped in this windowless, doorless room, there would be so much we could never know. It, It would be lonely, wouldn't it? And claustrophobic, something frightening about that. But then imagine that a section of the wall opens... And in steps somebody from the outside. So the equivalent of the FBI in whatever country we've been dropped down in, or the RNLI if actually we're on a submarine, or NASA or Elon Musk if we're, we're out in space. But crucially, somebody from the outside. Somebody not trapped within the thick walls of our reality. See, Jesus, he has outsider status. That is his expertise. In John's gospel, he he talks about knowing the truth because he is from above or from before or from his father. Christianity is not a series of discoveries about God. It's not the, um, the engineers and the architects and the physicists and the doctors and the biologists doing lots and lots of clever things with what we can perceive inside our material universe. Um, Nor is it the the spiritual equivalent of that. It's not centrally about the mystics and the dreamers and the prophets, though the Bible does contain all of that. It's not about the, the monks and the hermits and sort of increasing enlightenment as we travel up the mountain towards greater understanding. Christianity is about an event. One unique reality determining event 
when somebody qualified, an expert, comes from outside to tell us and show us and lead us and rescue us. And that is what it means to have an incarnation-based idea of God. That's what it means to have a revealed religion, to be a theistic religion at all. And certainly that is what Christianity means if you leave the the meat in the pie. Um, And some of you have been following the events in the Church of England. Thank you, as I said earlier, for praying. Uh, Some of you, I know, watched the, uh, the eight hours of debate as we talked about it at the Church of England Parliament last week. And there is a a presenting issue that is about sex, and we will get to that over the next uh, few weeks. But as the arguments got heated, and as people got frustrated last week, um, some extraordinary things were said. And um, two very different religions began to emerge clearly. Uh, there was a, a point where I made a, a short speech that I'll say just a little bit more about later. But in it, um, I, I found I had to respond to the highly intelligent, entirely sincere man who had spoken just before me. And he asked, how is it possible for all these people, meaning me and most of you, to talk about sin when you believe in a Jesus who was a saviour? That was his point. Why all this talk of sin if Jesus was a saviour? And I had to stand up and point out that Jesus is the one who saves us from sin. That the great discovery of Christianity is that I'm a sinner and that he has come into this world from outside to save me. And by the end of the debate, we would have been accused of being heretics who don't want the unity that Christ put in first place. And by the, the final two or three speeches, we were being accused of believing in salvation by works because we were saying that to be a Christian is someone who repents and turns away from sin. So do you see, we're, we're not really just disagreeing about one particular act and whether it's holy or sinful. Uh, actually... Uh, we are a threat to the, the whole new way of seeing reality and understanding Jesus and God. And the, the letter of 1 John, it was written to secure churches in difficult times. And he starts with an event, with God breaking into the world and determining reality. Uh, if the visitor from outside the room says we are underwater and we all need to put on scuba gear and swim with him to safety, well, then he knows more than me. If Jesus says he has come to save me from my sin and that he defines the rules and my identity and my purpose in life, well, then that is reality determining. So that's the event. Um, second, it was witnessed. And really, that is the main thing that our verses say. They say it again and again and again. Verse 1, heard uh, and seen and looked at and our hands have touched. Verse 2, we've seen it and testify to it. We proclaim it. Verse 3, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. So my um, illustration earlier with the, the closed room, that is not against the scientific method. I hope that the the biologists and the physicists did not hear it that way. Uh, All I meant is that we are limited by what we can see inside of the room. 
uh, the very big room that is our observable material universe. And John, he is not against that method either. Um, His point actually is that once God has stepped into the room in flesh, then he is observable. Then we can really get on with the science because what he did was hurt, seen with our eyes, looked at, and our hands have touched. The the Jesus event, John was there. He, He subjected it to three years of observations and experiments. John's gospel, it begins with the the establishment and the appointment of 12 witnesses, like a a jury or a commission of inquiry, 12 very different individuals who will watch this God event on our behalf and then report their findings. Certainly that is how John here understands his role a few decades later as the witness who saw it and tells us. And you may not believe him this morning. You may be here, you don't believe what John is saying is true. But please do him the dignity of disagreeing with him rather than patronizing him. See, the the mince pie, um, sugary version of Christmas, that can be um, transcended very easily. See, isn't it wonderful to have such an inspiring story to help us be kind to each other at Christmas time? The baby. And, And that works whether or not it's true. And actually, it's very bad form to start insisting that it is true, particularly at Christmas. It's like serving pies full of juicy, fatty meat at Christmas time. But John, he claims that the event was concrete and that he has accurately recorded his observations and that you can take his version as authoritative. So on the way out, you could pick up a copy of John's Gospel or any of the other Gospels over there and read it, and you will see this note all of the way through. John says, we saw his glory when hundreds of litres of tap water turned into the most expensive wine. We saw, we smelled, we touched, we tasted. That was the good bit that day. And that was just day one. We saw a picnic feed 5,000 people. And our actual physical arms, they ached from the effort of carrying all the leftovers in baskets. We saw our friend, a man called Lazarus. We saw him dead and buried and rotten. And then come walking out of his tomb because Jesus told him to. And then more than anything else, we saw our best friend, Jesus. We saw him murdered and buried And then we met him again afterwards. That's why we think he is the life. Verse 2. That is our interpretation of the facts that we saw and lived through. We're not gullible or desperate to believe comforting stories. What else do you conclude when someone has power over death so clearly? One of us, Thomas, he refused to believe it was the same person or refused to believe it was not a ghost until he'd sunk his fingers into the wounds from the crucifixion. And he was invited to do exactly that by a physical, breathing, alive Jesus. So he did the obvious scientific thing and concluded the result of his experiment. That is God's. We um, we read Acts chapter 4 earlier because it gives you a feel for the, the crazy collision of reality that happened after the resurrection of Jesus. It's just a few weeks uh, after uh, Jesus' death and resurrection, 
they, um, as Peter said, they, they healed this man in Jesus' name, and then they are arrested. They spend a night in prison, and then as witnesses, they try and tell the people who killed Jesus what they have seen. Let me just read to you a couple of verses from it. They called them in to speak again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter replied, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. And in particular, they can't help speaking. This is verse 12, just back over the page. Uh, cannot help speaking about the implications that salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Believe it, or don't believe it, but don't patronize John and Peter by thinking you know better than them what really they were trying to do. Christianity is not a flexible myth that can be shaped into a resource for the me in the center story of my life. It is a concrete and inescapable challenge and threat to me in the center. Uh, the person who really occupies that space is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who has broken into our world in flesh, witnessed and falsifiable. And there is no real Christianity uh, or not real for long, that seeks to reinterpret and redefine what they saw or heard. The, the witness material and the authentic interpretations given to them by the visitor from outside of our reality. They are unavoidably essential to real Christianity, uh, to the religion that is based on the Christ event. And that um, reality, that is a threat to one version of freedom. So it is attacked and reduced and written over. In particular, it is written over by a, a kind of conspiracy theory suspicion of any of the challenging bits. Can we really believe that Jesus would have said that? Can we really believe that Jesus would have thought that? As if the people who actually met him, selected, trained, uh, taught by him, uh, heard those things from his lips as if they would understand it better than us so much later. But as well as a threat to our freedom, maybe, this is also where the joy and the safety comes from. So that's where I want to go in our, our third point. Uh, this is the event witnessed that brings life. And um, 1 John summarizes and applies in five chapters what took John's gospel 21 whole chapters. Uh, so even in our verses here, Jesus, he is many things. He's the word, he's the light, he's life. But the heart of it is verse two, eternal life arrived in a person, witnessed and proclaimed. And John, he can proclaim it to you, verse two, and proclaim it to you, verse three, and can write it down, verse four, so that you and I have access to Jesus and to life. Uh, so here is a, a summary of John's gospel. Um, it is uh, three concepts, really, the whole of John's gospel, if you boil it down. It's there right at the end of John's gospel in John 20. I've written this book so that you may believe in Jesus 
And by believing in him, you may have eternal life. Um, John's gospel begins with that process. Come and believe in Jesus. We'll just turn ahead to 1 John chapter 5, which is at the end of our letter. And again, you have a summary of what the whole letter is about in the same sort of place at the end of the letter. And this time I write these things to you who believe, so it's to you who already believe, in the name of the Son of God, so that you will know that you have eternal life. Do you see the same three elements just rearranged now? Um, It's for those who are Christians in challenging circumstances, if you believe in Jesus, well then you can know some things for sure. You can know that you have life. Uh, That is a good consequence of everything that we've been saying so far this morning. This event from outside that is reality determining. He knows us. He came for us. He came to save us. And he was witnessed. And the witnesses have passed it on to us. Reliable, authentic, accurate. So if you believe, that means that you place your trust, your confidence in it. And you have life. It's not promising that every one of us every day will feel 100% the emotion of assurance, but we're meant to know based on these concrete events in the past. And um, being sure, uh, it relies in 1 John on three ways to know. So these thread through the letter. Um, If you've joined in with the event, If you responded to uh, the Jesus event, well, then you can know you have life. And three times, and then the opposites and the negatives all the way through the letter. We know if we keep his commands, 2 verse 3. We know because we love one another. And if we confess that Jesus is the Son of God, then we know. We know that we have life. And those three, they they work together as a whole. Uh, They all come out of the event. So Jesus, he arrives in flesh. You can see who he is. Believe it. There's some ideas that go with that. Jesus, the son of God. And there's some ways to treat each other. If he has loved us like that, we should love our brothers and sisters. And if we don't love our brothers and sisters, really, we don't have the family likeness with the son at all. Um, But also... If he is the son of God, then we obey him. And to love him is to obey him, to do the things that he has commanded. And the three work together as a whole. Uh, If you only believe some true things about Jesus, but don't love and don't obey, um, well, then you don't know that you have eternal life. Uh, All three work together. And um, the, the other person I had to disagree with in my speech Um, slightly embarrassingly, was the Archbishop of Canterbury, which was a slightly higher, and he was kind of not that far away, about as far away as David is from me here, um, uh, because he had said in 1 John, which I knew I was going to be preaching on this morning, said in 1 John, um, that unity is presented as the highest goal. And that's what we're going to be in 2 John and 3 John to check and to think about. And he said... Uh, unity means the command to love, and the only command is to love one another in a John 13 way, washing the feet of others. That is Jesus' command. 
And I had to point out the thing we were debating and discussing is the Church of England's doctrine on marriage, which is laid out in Church of England law and is the only point in Church of England law, which is slight shame, but it's the only point in which it says, as the Lord commanded. Uh, in other words, this is the one teaching that we all should agree is a command of Jesus. Jesus, he, yes, he commanded us to love, but he also told us how to live. He gives us commands. And in 1 John, you know you have life if you have these three things together. Now, let's just come back for the, the, the remainder of our, our couple of minutes this morning on uh, how wonderful it is to have life. Life and joy and fellowship. That's what I want to leave us with. Uh, so life. Uh, you can see that in verse 2 and verse 3. Perhaps you thought that my, um, my story of uh, waking up being locked in here was the most disturbing thing you've heard in a very long time. You may think, please no, don't lock me in here with this lot. Um, but the, the claustrophobia of it is deliberate. And actually it is dialed down from the reality of the, the secular materialism of the true atheist. Because in the, the materialist worldview, here we are without meaning or purpose, without explanation, and without any help to know how we should treat each other, whether treating each other well is good or bad. But more than that, we are here for such a short span of time. While the, the spaceship or the submarine or the medieval church hurtles on towards our deaths. In fact, it is, is like, imagine in the, the thought experiment, it's like inexplicably every night we lose consciousness again. And then when we awake in the morning, there are new people in the room suddenly, as bewildered as we were when we started. But also every morning there are some people missing without any real explanation or any kind of underlying logic. Some of the best people, the kindest people, not there anymore. And in the end, we all realize, eventually we will all be removed from this temporary bubble of observable reality. And we have no way of knowing what happens after, uh, after death. Without a visitor from outside whose name is life, only those of us who are in flesh ourselves need to care whether John is telling the truth here. Because flesh dies. And a saviour who is life eternal, that is something you need if you've realised that life is short. But life, it is not a, a cold category. So joy is where he takes us in verse 4. The goal here is complete joy that comes from knowing that you are a son of God's. This is a story with an ability to carry you through life. The eternal God, who was from the beginning the maker of all, he sent his beloved son to get me and to know me. He loved me so much. Uh, it says in our verses that God came to reveal and show. And then 4 verse 9, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. That is the meat in the pie at Christmas time, that God really loves us and we know because he sent his son. And then final thought is fellowship, which is closely linked to the joy here. He proclaims it, verse 3, so that you may have fellowship with us, 
with the witnesses. And that might not mean uh, much to you at first reading, but then he goes on. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So this is a close personal relationship being offered. That is what is at stake. Belief in the the witnessed event, it leads to unity with Jesus, who is united to his Father, from whom comes life and everything else. That is why John is completely joyful, and why we will be if we read his letter. That is the the joy of the the meal that we are about to eat, kind of a very small meal, uh, but it is a sign of a reality that we are in fellowship with the Creator God. We are in communion with him, and that after death, we will be daily sat at his table eating with him. And that also is the the sadness of my week in the Church of England last week. Um, The Church of England is not just redefining one chapter in the ethics textbook. That would be huge in itself. Huge for those who want it redefined, waiting for that. Also huge for those who will bear the cost of the change. But not just that. Because this is a move away from the idea of the concrete event, away from the idea that a bump of reliable knowledge from outside has come to us by revelation, that we cannot change, and that challenges my ability to make the story all about me and rewrite it with me at the center. It's the sadness of, of walking away from the witnesses and the event. We lose our fellowship with them. Whereas John, he wants us standing with Peter and James and John and Thomas. He was the one who struggled to believe until the evidence overwhelmed him. We, we could be with them in the same way that Jesus and his Father are together in the fellowship of the eternal Trinity that Jesus in John's Gospel says is the life he came to offer. And we've got four weeks in 1 John and 2 John and 3 John. And we're going to look at different kinds of walking each week. And this week, our title is Walking with the Father. He sent his son in love so that I can walk with him. And in Acts 4, Peter, James, and John, they were told, please, will you shut up about that? They were told to take out the meat and make this sugary and acceptable. And let me just close with what they said at that point. Which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to him. You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your son. That that is how you have shown us that you love us. And that in him we have truth and we have life and we have fellowship with you and we have joy. Pray, Father, that we would stand with the witnesses in fellowship, in partnership, as we continue to speak and to believe and to know the one whom you sent, Jesus, the only Son of the Father, in whose name we pray. Amen.